So thank you for coming and talking with us, Brandon, talking to Brandon Palanker, who has been working with and collaborating with us for quite a while. Uh, Brandon, among other things, is the founder of 3BL Strategies, which uh, I'll, I'll let him talk a little bit about, about what that is. Brandon's done some, some really um, cool stuff with, we'll talk a little bit about crowdsource placemaking and some of the other stuff where he's been working within this region and around the country. So we're really excited. Brandon's the second person that we're interviewing here on the podcast, and uh, we think it'll be a very engaging conversation as always. So thank you for being here, Brandon. Thank you for having me. Really look forward to the conversation. Wonderful. First off, I'm wondering um, if you can tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and, and your um, kind of your background and uh, what brought you here to Texas and where you were from uh, before. Sure. Uh, you know, I came uh, into sort of the real estate and urbanism fields from a little bit of a roundabout direction, uh, really as someone who loves urban places. Uh, I grew up in a small village, Seacliff, on Long Island, about 20 miles as the crow flies from Manhattan. Okay. And there I got to really experience the, the two sort of sides of urbanism. Uh, Seacliff wasn't even a downtown. It was really a main street and then one additional cross street, but had all the aspects of sort of a great walkable place. And that was my town growing up, walking, biking, what have you. Uh, but I was within a 30 you know, minute uh, train ride into Manhattan. Wow. And here you had, you know, the sort of uh, a barbell of the small, quaint uh, urban town to uh, one of the greatest urban centers really in history. So I happened to have a company doing strategic marketing and communication, sort of my base skill set. Uh, and a developer came into town, into Glen Cove, New York. Uh, that's where my business was located. And uh, they wanted to do a large scale mixed use development transit-oriented. It happened to have a ferry component as we are on Long Island. And this is around 2005. I happened to be on the board of the Chamber of Commerce, went to the breakfast seminar, and wow, did my eyes open. I said, this is a fantastic opportunity for a mixed-use project, more folks living adjacent to our downtown, a great use of a brownfield. And I thought, who could possibly be against something so great? Uh, well, I went up to the developer and uh, let him know that however I could help him out, uh, I'd love to do so just as a member of the community. Well, long story short, I learned quickly, especially where NIMBYism was invented on Long Island, I'll give it to the Bay Area. They have perfected the art. Um, many people can say no, and many people can have fears, many of them legitimate, uh, but a lot of it is just fear of change and fear of growth. So uh, what, what turned into sort of a, a nice friendly relationship became a friendly employment opportunity for me where I was brought on board to be the community liaison around 2006 or so. That was my entry into the world of real estate development uh, and walkable urbanism. I was with that company, Renaissance, and really helped them transition from a suburban developer uh, into a walkable urban developer. And uh, Renaissance, I'm still a part of that team, uh, principal of uh, the company. We have about half a dozen projects throughout the Northeast. Uh, while I'm no longer involved day to day, it's some really it's work that I'm really proud of at the end of the day. And that's where I cut my chops understanding uh, the integration of institutional level uh, financing and large scale development and the need to really work on the incremental side and that there's an opportunity to do the larger stuff better and to take from uh, hundreds of years of history in terms of creating great places. So about three and a half, four years ago, it was just time for me to take a change. I stepped away from uh, Renaissance downtowns. In fact, I'm going to see my partners up there in a few weeks and came down here to Texas. I found a new opportunity uh, to work with some folks, have been exploring some real estate development efforts, uh, in addition to sort of what pays the bills day to day, which is 3BL. And what we do is we work with public and private sector uh, firms, organizations, municipalities to help create walkable places. Uh, so we have that private sector experience, but really understand at the end of the day, it's about putting the pieces together and integrating uh, infrastructure, policy, uh, public outreach, finance, in order to get all the pieces aligned to make a place great. Uh, and that's why I love being down here in Texas, just so much opportunity, working with folks such as uh, you and Christopher, uh, the folks at CNU, folks at Urban Land Institute, and sort of bridging these worlds. 
You mentioned a couple things there, just to, for people that might not be as familiar. Talked about institutional financing, incrementalism, and NIMBYism. Sure. Just kind of commenting on either what you learned about that, expanding upon it, and maybe what those things are. Sure. So we'll start, you know, most of development in this country is done at an institutional scale, at least the stuff that you interact with within a large urban area and, and really mid-sized urban areas, cities as well. Um, in fact, most single-family homes, when you really look at it, are, are done at the institutional level or at least finance. So when you're talking institutional level, you're talking the largest uh, real estate investment trusts. You're talking about multi-billion dollar companies, uh, even smaller companies in terms of the banks and the access to capital is often done through these very large institutions, hence the term institutional. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that per se. The problem lies that the actual place and the actual experience of living, working, walking in that environment uh, is removed from the process of developing it. Uh, a place, a building uh, becomes a series of uh, squares on an Excel spreadsheet that represent economic units, not recognizing, A, that there's a lot more to creating a place than just the economics. Uh, I'm a private sector guy. The economics have to work. Work, but I can also say it's a bit myopic because the institutional folks that only are looking at it from a financial perspective are actually leaving dollars uh, on the table. That brings us to incrementalism. You know, the idea of incrementalism is really how development has happened throughout most of history. The idea is uh, someone either speculates on land or finds a river or finds a crossroads or a path through trading. We're talking through thousands of years and sort of plants their flag and say, we're going to do something here. And it starts as literally a shack. And for those places that sort of gain traction through a confluence of economics, and again, we go back to infrastructure. Infrastructure might have been a horse path, but that was infrastructure, transportation. At that point, that shack becomes sort of a wooden house. And then maybe a couple other wooden structures come on up with it. And those one or two-story structures then become four-story or two to four-story brick structures. And they start to evolve over time. And that's a much more organic, albeit a much slower process. But you can learn from that incrementalism because it's organic, because it has lots of small successes and small failures, but you don't notice the failure because the two-story building that didn't happen to make it just simply gets knocked down um, or it evolves into something greater or devolves into something that works for that place. Uh, maybe it becomes public space, a park, maybe it goes back to farmland, what have you. So those are the two sides, the institutional, the sort of big players with the very deep pockets that are removed from the place, and then the incremental, uh, which is really how development happens organically over time. My belief is there's an opportunity to mix the two and to take from both to sort of accelerate uh, the good small stuff uh, while making the big stuff a bit better. That brings us to the third point you brought, which was nimbyism. Uh, not in my backyard. Uh, we as humans, we're afraid of change, and that's understandable. Uh, the, the problem with that is we know it's the only constant. So if you think of yourself as a place where you're a small town or a large city or a neighborhood within a city, over time you will evolve. Uh, people will uh, move in, move away. You will have influxes of uh, new immigration, different looking faces, different backgrounds, different cultures. And over time, that evolves and changes one way or the other. If we ignore that it will change, uh, change generally drags us along with it, not to our liking. Uh, if we work with change, we can provide some outcomes that really benefit everybody. But that fear of change presents... Uh, many communities with a face of we don't want development. We don't want a new uh, four or five story building. We're afraid of new residents coming into our communities, what have you. Uh, and this really became a big issue within suburban communities because by nature, they're designed to be uh, sometimes stale. Um, they're designed to sort of be a moment in time when again, time continues forward and change is going to occur. So you have these bedroom communities, um, these suburban auto-oriented communities that have been very resistant and not wanting to see development occur. Incremental is often easier to get there, but if you're a small developer and you're fighting a community that 
might benefit from the change but is afraid of it, it's unlikely you'll have the wherewithal to reach out to the community, to go through a year-long process of educating civic leaders and stakeholders as to you know, the benefits of walkable urbanism. If you're an institutional player, you might have the budget to be able to go through that, but are you able to really understand sort of the local flavor and become uh, a guest and then an invited guest into that community? So that's really the challenge is how do you work with communities to build support? That's not to say you're looking to force something down that's going to have uh, a negative result down the line. There are positive outcomes, but there's an educational process and a co-creative process where it's neither the developer nor the city telling a community this is what we're going to build, but sort of rolling up the sleeves and determining what's going to be best for the community and the neighborhoods down the road uh, that will work according to market forces. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and one of the reasons why I, I really respect the work that you've done and, and we'll be talking more about it is, is kind of that, that crowdsource placemaking, which is really so largely about how you can build consensus in a place where people don't want change, but maybe understand that there is going to be change and help them to understand what are the pros and cons to accepting this type of change rather than that type of change, mm -hmm. because, because it all has trade-offs and sometimes we don't realize what trade-offs we're making. Um, one of the things that you kind of brought up that I think, I think that you've actually brought up several things that sort of we, as people who think about cities and places have come to understand much more over the last few years than we did even maybe five years ago. Um, and, and that the idea that this is really this very timeless type of development and timeless way of development that we've really had for thousands of years. And this challenge as to how can you take this thing that's very standardized um, in that we have these very big developers and do something which is, you know, you might say not just a, a, prod, a product, but a way of civilization. Um, and it's interesting to me because one of the things I've thought, and, and, and maybe, maybe you have some um, thoughts on this, is how much, how much this incrementalism, um, I, I've started to see it not only as a way to achieve urbanism, but almost that's what urbanism is. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, that, yeah. that if something's not incremental, it can't be urbanism. Can you talk about, about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think I would respectfully disagree, but with a big caveat. Okay. Uh, I think you can do larger scale developments and have great urbanism. It is very rarely occurred. Um, the great thing about incrementalism is that's sort of the heart of urbanism. And as I mentioned before, one of the key factors is if a community tries something else at an incremental scale or a developer does, and whether the developer goes belly up or the project just doesn't pan out, uh, you haven't set yourself back 20 years. You know, you really may not have set yourself back much at all. You sort of go back to the drawing board and figure out, all right, this didn't work here, what can? Uh, that's the danger with the larger scale is when you do fail, you're sort of stuck with what you have for sometimes one, two, three generations. Right. We're not just talking a series of cycles and certainly not just years. But again, I think it comes to the heart and soul of the evolution of a place and how incrementalism allows that to occur. The challenge is how do we take the lessons we've learned, whether it's enjoying walking around, you know, Paris or Prague or New York City and enjoying those different types of urban experiences. And how can we create that uh, in a manner where, you know, one developer might happen to have four city blocks or might happen to have a redevelopment opportunity that was once a factory, for example, and it happens to be 30 acres or 40 acres. Well, it's very difficult to do that in an incremental manner. Mm -hmm. But it's just as hard, if not harder, to do that in a large-scale effort, in an institutional manner, but get what you were talking about, is that good urbanism. So I think we need to take those lessons. Uh, we are relearning how to do this. Uh, we'll take a real quick uh, ride through history for 99. I just talked about this at a recent, recent um, speech that I gave. You know, through 99% of human history, you know, we started gathering around 7,500 or 10,000 years ago, sort of in villages, you might want to say. And you go all the way through time until about 70 years ago, and we built in one way. We built really uh, within a walking distance. 
because other than obviously horse-drawn, your primary mode of transportation for just about everyone was walking. And if you could not get to your daily and even weekly, monthly needs within a walking distance, 10, 15 minutes, 20 at the absolute um, uh, greatest distance, uh, you've extended beyond what your market reach can do. Well, all of a sudden, when the automobile was invented in post-World War, when we started creating uh, environments that were geared towards autos and not for people, uh, all of a sudden, we sort of changed that entire dynamic. So we need to learn from that 99% of history of how do we create these great walkable environments, then take what we've learned in terms of business practice. So from what Ford did with the automobile to what we see in some of the more staid, uh, less urbanistic housing options and built environments today, but how do we take the tools to do stuff uh, lighter, cheaper, faster, but on a brand, on a large scale, and how do we tie that with the lessons we've learned from literally 99% of the time uh, we've congregated in villages and create these walkable environments? It's not easy. We are reinventing it and in a lot of ways inventing it because we're doing so in an environment that didn't exist 100 years ago. Right. And with a form of transportation that in almost all cases you have to accommodate that that is connected with that environment. And I think you hit the right word. It's accommodate. Um, you know, Highland Park Village, for those folks that are familiar uh, here in da- the Dallas area and, and North Texas, that's a great example of um, it's essentially a strip center. But it was a strip center built so early in terms of the evolution of the automobile that when you are there, it still feels like a place and it feels good to walk from store to store if you can afford it. It happens to be quite high end. <laughs> It's a wonderful neighborhood, and they've done quite well. But the lesson there is they didn't build it for the automobile. They accommodated the automobile and built it for people. Right. When you go to a great place, 99% of the time it feels great for people, and it allows you to get there and to park, because obviously the auto is still uh, king of transportation, um, and then some. Uh, so I think there are some lessons to be learned because as we built for the auto and not for people, the whole idea is getting people faster and faster from one place to the other. The irony is we have sacrificed the quality of the places we're going from and to to get from and to there quicker. Sort of a little bit backward, I think, at the end of the day. Kind of like the internet and over-information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we what we've done is we want to spend less time, a little less time in our cars to enjoy the places we go a lot less doesn't make sense to me. Right. It's interesting because it's like that street road dichotomy that Strong Towns talks yes. about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the example that I notice in, in my neighborhood in Dallas, uh, the Bishop Arts neighborhood, um, where it's you know been traditionally just a very uh, kind of narrow street, but parallel to it is Zhang Boulevard, where you can get through very quickly. Mm-hmm. And Bishop, if you want to drive through Bishop, it's going to take you a couple, you know, it'll take you a few more seconds to get through there. It'll take another 30 seconds or to go to any of the, the parallel streets. Um, but the fact that cars have to drive very slowly and very carefully means that the pedestrian is king there and it's a good place to walk around. Yes. Uh, and you can still have a road where you can drive, drive faster. Um, well, I was going to say to that yeah. point also, like bringing up the Internet, that's kind of what's changed things. Because before you kind of still had to go to these places, right? Mm-hmm. Now yep. you don't have to. You're like, why would I drive to a place like you just said? That's not that great. Right? Yeah, I, That's an interesting point. I think what you're touching upon is the commoditization, uh, making commodities out of stores and out of places themselves. Well, a commodity is something you need. So when you had no choice but to either walk to the store and then the little store that was with walking distance went out of business for you know a larger, whether it's a chain store or a large regional outlet, well, all of a sudden you had to drive because right. you had no choice. Well, now we have that choice and, and we can uh, substitute a subpar driving and place experience by just clicking a few things online. What the internet can't replace, and I think what we've learned really over the last 15 years with this return to urban living that started in a large city, started with sort of Friends, uh, the TV shows, Friends and Seinfeld in New York and ER in Chicago and has gone on from there and then reached into suburban cities and smaller towns. It's that depiction of urban living and, and that sort of evolution. But what you can't replace with the internet is you can't, you can't experience the interaction and the social aspect that makes us human. So why we gathered 7,500, 10,000 years ago you know, within these villages. It wasn't just for economics and commerce. There's a real social aspect to our being. It's why you still have movie theaters. 
Uh, it's why you see so much growth while retail is struggling, restaurants and experiential opportunities are growing because if you want to get in your car, you eventually want to end up in a place and do something and you want to do something <laughs> with people. Right. That's something I think we need to, to focus upon, whether it's incremental or larger scale and provide those types of experiences. Right. And people always ask us, you know, or tend to ask, is this going away? And I say, no, it's not going away. It's just changing. Um, we've talked, had many conversations about, you know, the ones that are going to make it and who's not going to make it. And mm -hmm. I think you've had some really specific, uh, you know, certain class malls are going to make it. Other ones are going to, which, which ones are just to be specific? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, and you know, it's funny because two, three years ago, everyone was talking the retail, you know, apocalypse. Right. And, and there are some apocalyptic, apocalyptic aspects, but it's really just an evolution. And in evolution, you think of the dinosaurs, some moments of evolution are stark and there's a quick change uh, that drastically changes everything. But it's not as if it just life ends, it evolves. And that's what we're seeing with malls. Uh, your, your A plus and your A malls, the ones that are a little bit more luxury oriented, uh, have sort of that full array of uh, some local, but certainly the national chains, your malls are generally looking for bankable tenants such as that. Uh, it's part of the joy that some people love and part of the emptiness of experience that others will complain about. But those class A malls are going to do fine, but they are still evolving. Uh, whether it's the ice skating rink that's been there for you know 40 years and more experiences like that, the idea is that you're not going just to shop. You're going there to have a social and engaging experience. I think your B-plus malls, uh, I think they have a role in terms of, especially your smaller uh, regions that can't necessarily support you know, your your top flight uh, tenants per se, but there's still a need for congregation. But after that, they're really struggling. And that's where you're seeing a shedding of uh, square footage on the retail side. Uh, these numbers are a few years old, but I'm sure they're pretty accurate still to date. I mean, the U.S. has something like 22 or 24 square feet of retail per person. Right. When you go over to Germany, I think it's something like 2.3. Right. You know, we're not talking about a third world country. We're talking about one of the most advanced societies, uh, great culture in Germany. Uh, do we need 10 times the retail? I don't think we do. And I think the economy is sort of sorting that through. You're also seeing a transition in you know, in some places, there's simply too much square footage. There's not enough growth. There had been an overextension of retail and there's a retrenchment. So uh, in those malls and those communities, you're seeing non-retail uses. Uh, churches might be taking over. You're seeing some experiments with putting residential or mixed use options. You see a lot of efforts uh, in a range of communities at different sizes of taking struggling B, B minus malls and sort of uh, deconstructing them. Uh, in a way where you might keep one or two of the anchors, the larger, you know, uh, maybe it's a Macy's that still, you know, happens to be kicking and doing well. But the idea is those inline shops that used to all be inside, they're now trying to recreate a downtown type experience. Uh, some are doing better jobs than others, but that's the evolution that we're facing. I think we're still going to see a retrench in the square footage of retail, but really more an evolution to an experiential perspective and not that commodity perspective. I don't need to go to the mall to get something that I can click a couple buttons away. I might go to, I guess we still call it the mall. If I'm going to see my friends, I'm going to get a bite to eat and I'm going to have some engaging experience. Uh, and that's what they're trying to do to lure people in. Yeah. One thought, and then I'd like your, you to hear your thought on something. So of course I came here from having, you know, lived mostly in Chicago. And when I came to Dallas, uh, I kind of said, well, there's nothing here that's similar to the experience of a Michigan Avenue where you see right. everybody walking around of all different groups and races and income levels. And there's, you know, there's high end shopping, but there's also some other, then I come over and visit North park mall. And it was this place where of course it's, it's the most prestigious mall in our region. Yeah. Um, but it's also a place where you saw people of all sorts of backgrounds just coming and some of them were there to shop, but some of them were there just to walk around and, and enjoy themselves. And you have a lot of these various placemaking traits and public art and, and gathering spaces. This serves for many people um, the same the same aspect that, that someone like myself might normally get out of a, a Sundance Square in Fort Worth or a, a deep alum or, or whatnot. Um, so I thought that that was very interesting. And I think that, you know, these malls have, have long 
um, maybe had a lot more systematic understanding of a lot of these traditional urbanism ideas in a lot of ways and were able to apply them when, when the cities forgot about all of them. One, one simple example is if you walk around a mall, the malls won't let stores have a, a window that's blank or that's unengaging because right. they know that if you do, the person's going to turn around and walk away. Place management. Place management. Yeah. And cities don't necessarily see that as being that important. It is. It's very, very important. 100%. And, and the malls the malls understand that. Another thing that I'd like to, I, I think you'd be unusually um, well positioned to kind of comment on. Uh, so we have in this country, as you say, too much retail. Um, and one of the challenges is that there's a barrier to entry when it comes to, to you know, having credit tenant, national credit tenants, what we might say. Yep. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we talk about is, is incubation. But the other thing is that's interesting is that having something in these storefronts that brings in people creates a vastly disproportionate economic impact if it's in the right place. Um, if you look at the, the example I like to use again, going back to the Bishop Arts neighborhood, um, there are thousands and thousands of housing units that are much more valuable with an entire square mile because for a long time, you just had one block essentially of stores and restaurants right. that happened to be configured in the right way. So they had to just make money in the market, but they were creating vastly disproportionate economic impacts. The same might be said for a developer they might really be focused on getting the national credit tenant retail, but that might drive the value of their their um, retail or of of, of their uh, residential or of their office. An example is Sundance Square in downtown Fort Worth. If you talk to Johnny Campbell, um, who I think still runs Sundance Square Inc., he says basically if we had to charge zero for all our retail, it would still be worth it for us because nothing else here would be valuable. Yes. So I'd like your thoughts. So if we have these storefronts that are going to be empty, some of them are just going to be empty. We can't fill all of them probably in the future, but some of them are in really good positions and we have to maybe figure out a way to fill it in that either might not make economic sense in and of itself, isolated, or that maybe we have to come up with some creative ways to incubate different types of businesses and give people a chance to do something unique that might not be able to take out a five, 10 year lease and, mm -hmm. and all the other things associated with it. Any, any thoughts on that? Woo, that, that could be a few hours on that was itself, a lot. right? I know. But yeah, I, I do have some thoughts uh, and it comes down to a couple words that we, we uh, sort of threw about in terms of placemaking uh, and uh, place management at the end of the day. I think the challenge you face is when, when you're a mall owner, you have one ownership, you know, at the end of the day. And, I should back up. Technically, they're often, from a financial perspective, the ownership of a mall can get very, very confusing. And you can have, you know, two anchor stores own their own, and then the inline's owned by, you know, an entity that may even be located out of the country. Let's put that aside. From the actual day-to-day -day operations and management, a mall is one entity. Uh, and they can therefore look like any business does <coughs> and say, we're not only not making money on an empty storefront, it's losing us money because people don't want to walk by the empty storefront. It's not experiential. It's not right. fun. It's also a, a negative sign of, oh, maybe this mall's not doing so well. Well, so you have malls that think, well, what could we do? And you have things such as percentage leases that have been around you know, for decades at the end of the day. But at some point in time, there was a landowner that said, it would be better for me to get nothing or very little out of this and hope to take an empty storefront and make it active. And perhaps by making it active through a percentage rent, you know, where someone comes on in and if they make a little money, they pay a little rent, but then they start to make a lot of money. And now not only does the landowner make money, but now they've got a new business and that was a locally incubated business. Mm -hmm. The challenge with more organic environments, the ones that we love, whether it's Bishop Arts or downtown or uptown Dallas, whether it's New York City, what have you, uh, or just a small rural downtown, you don't have one entity that can make all of those decisions. Right. That's why we've seen for those who are familiar place management organizations, PIDs and BIDs, public improvement districts or business improvement districts, where essentially uh, you might have a, one or a series of, of city blocks where the landowners get together and literally impose an additional tax upon themselves. 
because what they are going to say is we need one central management structure that has to be paid for. We're going to take money out of our revenues to reinvest so that there's one entity that can undertake some issues such as what are we going to do with empty storefronts or what are we going to do with a park? Uh, the best example of this is Bryant Park in New York. Um, the story is this was Needle Park you know, going from the 70s and the 80s. And when we say Needle Park, people were going to this area surrounded by Class A buildings, you know, in the heart of Manhattan uh, to shoot up and to pass out on drugs. And it was dangerous, it was scary, it was dark, and it certainly did not help the property values. Well, those property owners got together they created a business improvement district, as it's called in, in New York, uh, and they taxed themselves. What they did with those monies is they programmed the park, is they made sure it was a vibrant, active place where they have opportunities for retail, opportunities to just go and enjoy yourself, mostly passive, a little bit of active sort of you know entertainment and the like. But that's a perfect example of a group getting together and saying, we have to spend some money in order to preserve value and then create value. Well, you take that to almost any environment and that's your best mechanism to look at it as a mall owner, as sort of one entity so that you can create and focus five years down the road. We want these outcomes. How do we get there and create that management structure, that uh, business or public improvement district uh, to go ahead and, and, and make those uh, make those efforts, do that programming, whether it's as simple as uh, street cleaning. I mean, hey, you still got Sundance Square, right? At the end of the day, uh, you know, good luck finding even a cigarette butt laying around. Mm -mm. You're not going to. Right. Um, and that comes from that management structure. So I think that's sort of the key is how do we combine the public and private sectors in a manner where there's agreement from everyone, but at the end of the day, one voice, because uh, you can't create, you know, you can't create a horse by committee at the end of the day. Right. Well, it's interesting that you bring up PIDs. It'll probably, probably come up in every podcast until I make it happen somewhere, but <clears throat> I've been really uh, big on this idea of a land PID. We did some look in, looking into the Texas laws, mm -hmm. and it looks like it's possible. Um, it hasn't been done anywhere. I look. What would a land PID? A land look PID like? is basically a PID, but instead of taxing the entire building and land, you just tax the land. Interesting. Which mm -hmm. means that if someone hasn't built anything, they're paying the same as the guy who actually built stuff, mm -hmm. which encourages development in the area, and it also is helping really the people that are doing things already. If you just have a blank plot of land, you're paying the same as the guy who actually builds stuff. Yeah. But it's an incentive. It's to, an incentive. To do it's, something. And it's also, but it's still helping that area. So the people that are doing things in the area are being, the benefit is going to them. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. You know, often the way, and, and I'm going to get a little over my skis here, so someone will <laughs> correct me uh, when I'm wrong, not if. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, but you know, when you form a bid or a PID, you know, you're essentially looking at what are your taxes today, and and it's that delta of today versus the future that's often you know what you're you're basing those assessments on. To your point, that's not necessarily fair. If I've taken a lot of time and risk with no help from anyone else to you know build up to let's say it's an eight or a twelve story tower and it's very active, but there was a lot of risk that I could have lost all my money or all my investors' money in that over multiple cycles versus someone who's sort of just sitting around and you know has either an empty parcel or something that's not as economically active. Uh, so I really like that idea. And it then goes into even the tax structure of how we tax uh, properties. Uh, and there's been a lot of movement and a lot of discussion in terms of if we tax the land and not the building. Uh, because so often I know landowners that say, look, I would love to intensify this use. I know I'm close to the downtown or in the downtown. I know this should not be a two-story building that has a whole lot of parking, but I look at the economics and for me to tear down my building and then, then take the risk, I'm making money. What am I going to do? If you change the structure of taxation to say, look, you've got an acre of land and your acre is going to be treated the same as someone else, you've now provided an incentive to your point to say, I'm going to do as much on this acre as I darn well can. You obviously need certain uh, you know, checks and balances to make sure that works within you know, the overall place governance. But I love that idea of a land pid. I'm a big, big fan of this. We, we did talk about this in the first podcast as well. But you know, as, as you may know, the state of Pennsylvania um, allows 
uh, cities to tax more heavily on land than on improvements. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Pittsburgh did that. For some reason, they, they haven't, and I haven't been able to figure out why they stopped. But um, Pittsburgh did do that. And if you look, even in the worst time in Pittsburgh, there weren't really vacant, you know, par- uh, surface parkings yeah. lots downtown. It was either a parking structure or mm-hmm. a building because you were very heavily incentivized to uh to do something or you were going to get you were going to get killed in in taxes um it's interesting to to go back to something the the bryant park example yes um so it's i look at a lot of these things so in the case of bryant park i think that one of the things that was very successful in fact um uh project for public spaces who works with us in in the downtown collaborative was very instrumental in helping make this work is that you had a lot of things to do, you have a lot of programming, you have a lot of attention to detail. And as with, for example, Clyde Warren here in Dallas, mm-hmm. you have the money and you have the staff to to do that. What, there's a couple of things kind of I think about with, with sorts of these, these PIDs and BIDs and sort of very localized place management structures. If you look at, for example, in this area, you have these walkable urban places that create a tremendous amount of secondary and tertiary value that doesn't necessarily go directly into people's pockets. So you have, you know, in the case of downtown Dallas, uptown Dallas, downtown Fort Worth, um, you have uh, a lot of money coming into these places so that you can actually afford to spend significant money on these types of, you know, downtown Dallas Anchor, downtown right. Fort Worth. Thing. These are well-funded things. In the case of Fort Worth, of course, Sundance Square, you even have centralized ownership of, of a large swath of, of downtown. In the case of other places, you have these very... Uh, you have places that create enormous value, but the value is not necessarily coming into immediate taxes. So, you know, in the case of um, you might point to the fact that you, there's not really any structure on Lower Greenville or in Bishop Arts or in a lot of different places like that where you, know, you might have, um, you know, especially like a TIF district where a lot of money is going into Bishop Arts, but it's not going into the type of fine grain things that are really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the one of the examples I look at is Oklahoma City, where they've actually funded anything that's a remotely interesting neighborhood, you know, in terms of, of walkable urbanism and some that aren't, you have someone who's essentially a Main Street manager and, and some social media there. Um, how Do you have thoughts on how cities can start thinking? Because really, it, it, the city gets all of this tax and other benefits from having a Bishop Arch, from having increased values within a square mile, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen structures or, or how, how would you think that cities should be thinking about this for those types of areas? That's an interesting question. Need a little research behind I've, this I've, one. Maybe, maybe, but no, yeah. I've, but, it's, it's, but it's a good question. And, yeah. and I, I'm thinking of it in a couple of ways. So let's sort of discuss this, you know, around right. here and we'll, we'll bat some ideas. You know, I'm starting with the idea of Central Park in New York City. So we talked about Bryant Park, certainly much smaller. Now, Central Park is not a bid or a PID, um, and it doesn't directly provide any financial benefit to any of the buildings nor to the city, right? right? You know, and if you're going to be really myopic, you can say, wow, imagine if we tore down all these trees and (laughs) and built a bunch of 80-story buildings. How much money could we make? Well, then you'd say, yeah, but you'd be destroying the value for, in in a lot of ways, all of Manhattan, Right. Right. You then take the other side of the equation, which isn't as pretty or as fun as a park, uh, but let's look at the infrastructure. Let's look at sewers, let's look at roads, uh, bridges, transit, what have you. You know, these are investments that generally come, you know, from a mix of local, state, and federal monies, depending on when they were built. But the idea is everyone's paying a little bit into that pot, whether or not they're utilizing or gaining the benefit, right? You know, and I think that comes down to how can we better sort of match up revenues and economic um, sort of uh, activity with what's actually spurring or promoting that. And I say that from a business perspective. You own a business and you know that I can invest $100,000 in new machinery and that will pay itself and then over five times and I'll have 500,000 more in my pocket five years down the road. Well, darn it, that's an investment worth making. But you have to be able to say, it's that piece of equipment or this process that I can change that's going to give me these results. Mm -hmm. 
So that where, that's where we get into transportation policy and the idea of, well, do we raise the gas tax to pay for certain things because at least that's someone that's using the road. Uh, you have so many people out there that say, why are we uh, taxing to subsidize transit? If transit doesn't pay for itself, we shouldn't have transit. To which I then look back and say, do we pay for all of our non-toll roads one right. way or the other? Should we get rid of them, right? So how do we best find a way to determine what are we capturing? In the case of um, Clyde Warren Park, that was very clear is if you built this very expensive public improvement, you are going to uh, accelerate and create economic development, public and private sector monies, profits, and tax rateables that you can then capture. And it's easy to understand who's gonna benefit. That's where it's easy to sort of put in a bid or a PID because if I'm a landowner, I'm saying, yeah, I'm willing to give you a percentage of my current and future profits if it means I have a lot more of those profits. How do you do that in terms of overall? I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. I, I think it comes down to how do you attach what's creating that value right. and who's benefiting the most. Uh, I think that's probably just the most equitable way, but curious what you guys think. I, I think this a little bit ties into maybe answering it a little bit differently, but when we talk about crowdsource placemaking, right, and you go to an individual, mm -hmm. right, and you say, well, do you want this? Or do you want that? I, I, I know you've gone through, I've been with you on a couple of those uh, talks with whenever, while you're explaining the process that you went through and just kind of the, the kind of aha moment when people will say, oh, you mean I have to do this to, okay, I'll allow a little bit more and more density so that I can have, you know, the neighborhood market or the closest thing to a trader, trader Joe's that they're going to get or whatever it is. Um, it seems kind of a parallel to what we're talking about on a smaller scale. I, I think so. And, and, you know, first, I guess we'll, we'll back up a moment for those that don't know what crowdsourced placemaking is, right? So most folks out there are familiar with, with what crowdsourcing is, but for those who aren't, um, generally it's taking a process, think a research and development, that's usually done in-house by a company or an organization or whatnot. They may or may not have a few focus groups, but they're trying to figure out what the market wants and then they sort of create what that market wants, whether it's a computer or whether it's a couch or a car or whatnot. The idea of crowdsourcing is instead of doing that internally and guessing what the users want, it's engaging the actual user. So if you're building a car and Ford did this very well, I don't know, 15 or whatever years ago, where they would outsource what used to be an internal process and they would have the, the market itself, the public tell the company what they want to see. And this process, when you take it over to placemaking, instead of the development community or the municipality saying, this is the project we're going to create, you find a way to engage the end user, the people who work, live, and who will work and live in that environment and outside that environment. This comes down to something that's sort of called the long tail theory. Uh, and I do know where I'm going with this, so, mm -hmm. so work with me here. The long tail theory essentially says, of the 100% of folks that are out there making up a population, there's sort of that 1% that is the controlling interest, the controlling class. They have the money slash wealth, they have the political connections, what have you, right? And this isn't to say there, uh, this is not a good versus bad type of thing, it's just sort right. of the reality. Right. And then you have the 99%. So that 1% could be your sort of your elected officials or your families that have had land for generations. It could be your Walmarts and your Coca-Colas of the world. And then you have your 99% of small businesses and individuals and whatnot. Well, who gets to rule the day? It's, the 90, it's that 1%. The reality is the 99% is much stronger and much more influential than that 1% with the big caveat that you have to somehow harness them. You have to herd that 99% of cats. If you find a way to do that, you've created something that can actually create significantly more power and have far more say in the future than that 1% that usually rules today, what's called the big head. So it's that 99%, the long tail, that if you can find a way to congregate around something, you can have tremendous influence. So when you take this for placemaking, the idea is how do we reach out to that 99%? Um, small business owners, people who simply live or might visit that downtown, people who work there, folks who may have grown up in an area but moved away because it doesn't provide what they want, but they would go back if indeed that downtown were revitalized. And crowdsourcing says, hey, 99%. 
We're going to go online and we're going to be able to congregate on an online platform. We're going to be able to provide ideas, stores, shops, amenities that we would like to see the developer build or the municipality plan for. Uh, the municipality working with the developer, working with the community has to be honest. Just because an idea is desired doesn't mean it will work. But when a community, that long tail of 99% starts to provide ideas, these are the types of stores and the types of amenities and places we want to see. They then have an understanding of, okay, we now know that we want an organic grocer and a place for the kids to play and maybe a, a piazza or a town square and be honest with the community to say, we can get these outcomes, but in order to do so, a grocery store needs, you know, depending on the size, four to 8,000 rooftops to survive. Do we have enough density? So now folks understand, well, maybe that five-story residential building that I was so afraid of, maybe we need those 300 new residents to be able to support the types of uh, stores and amenities that I want in my downtown. Well, that brings us back to where we started here. And the idea is when you're looking for what is that economic generator, well, in my opinion, a downtown is an amenity for everyone not just for the folks who work or live in that downtown, but for the community around it. Bishop Arts is a great example. If you're within 15, 20 minutes of Bishop Arts, that might be your downtown. And even though you have to drive there, especially if you're close enough to walk, wow, what a tremendous amenity. And I think that's where you can combine the opportunity of this crowdsourcing idea of working with the community at large to determine what will work through the market, but what they would like in this educational process <laughs> of, we want A, B, and C. To get there, we need certain densities. We need certain infrastructure structure improvements and that also comes back to the discussion we were talking about where wow what does bishop arts really represent and i know you talked about this at one point in the past economically and that's something that serves all of north texas right. but certainly those within a walking distance most of all right and i bet you i mean to to that to that point if you really think about about the the economic impacts of these neighborhoods um, you know, you think of, um, in fact, this goes back to the walk up, wake up call with, with Chris Leinberger, which mm -hmm. we can, we can talk more about that you were very involved with where, uh, there was a study that identified, what was it? Uh, 27, um, so, core walkable neighborhoods. I think it was, the number was in the thirties, right, um, right. but still very small for a region that is 12,000 square miles or something. Right. And, you know, a matter of, of almost a, a handful of, uh, a few square miles, if you add it up. Um, if you, when you really think of the economic value, not only the jobs, not only the taxes, not only all of the things that are created there, what would this region be without those 27 or whatever, 30, 30, whatever it is areas? Uh, if you, if you imagine it without that, or if you imagine if we were to take the five best walkable urban neighborhoods out of Dallas, um, I wouldn't live in this city, but neither would a lot of other people because it would just be, well, there, where's the places to go? Where's the places to enjoy and get, uh, and get a different experience? So it seems to me that, that these secondary tertiary things that we can't really measure mm -hmm. are so much a part of the image of these areas and, and the quality of life. And if you look at, you know, use the example of a, of a Sundance Square in Fort Worth, what would the entire reputation of Fort Worth be? Um, if it didn't, if people couldn't say this has this amazing downtown that you have here, that's, that's super walkable. And you know, you, you mentioned, you know, how it may be difficult to measure, but it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. And there are measurements out there. It might not be exactly what someone's looking for, but you mentioned the walk up, wake up call. Uh, and this was a research conducted by, um, renowned urbanist, uh, developer and academic, uh, Chris Leinberger, really one of the absolute, I mean, one of my mentors and one of the leaders in our industry. And what Chris, uh, working uh, with his affiliation at the George Washington University, what they did is they came in and studied every single parcel of land in all of North Texas, not just Dallas or Fort Worth, not just the Metroplex or DFW, all of North Texas. And they measured the economic and social benefits of two types of land use. There are only two ways. It goes back to how we started, where we grew up in villages. And then in the last 70 years, we've started building for cars. There's two ways to build an environment. One is walkable urban and one is drivable suburban. And we need to sort of 
reconfigure what we think of as urban and suburban. Uh, there are areas, whether it's a da- historic downtown like McKinney or Roanoke, or whether it's a new development uh, like Legacy West, there are walkable urban areas in suburban regions. And if you come here into the city core, there are far too many areas in and around downtown Dallas, for example, that while you might say, well, that's the inner city, it's really drivable suburban in nature, right? So they look and they, they sort of plot this out on a map And what they discovered is those areas that are more walkable, they have more density, more mix of uses, and a high enough walk score that they perform far better economically than the areas that you can only get around driving. So much so that 0.1% of the landmass of this region is walkable urban. Not 1%, which is the average in most uh, in sort of uh, most established uh, regions. In that 0.1%, that outperforms drivable suburban by a factor of 112%. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, what you see is by creating walkable urbanism, you increase um, production, gross domestic product, uh, the product that's created by, by a place. And when you start to look at that, you can start to quantify And I think that's our call to action is 20 years ago, very few of those places existed at all in this region. Uh, We're still well behind, but that's the opportunity is what is our call to action here in North Texas? What do we want our future to be? And to me, it's about balance. Um, There's still a large market and the largest market for single family homes and drivable suburban. There's nothing wrong with that. But while the market may in in sort of gross numbers be smaller for folks that want to live in these more walkable urban areas, there's simply not enough product. There's a dearth of product in supply and demand. So when you have far more demand for these walkable places than you have supply, that's where the price goes up. Right. And that ties into the other aspect of the walk-up wake-up call, where while it's more expensive to live in the walkable urban areas, it actually is more socially equitable. Why? Car costs anywhere from nine to $12,000 a year to own. And in an area like North Texas where you're possibly driving 40, 50 miles to work and have to sort of drive miles and miles everywhere, it's toward the higher end of that spectrum. If you can create an environment where you have dense nodes, dense nodes provide a better opportunity to connect through transit and certainly the opportunity to maybe one of, uh, you know, uh, husband or a wife, one can walk to work, the other can drive, well, you've just taken $10,000, $12,000 and put it back in their pockets. So while it's more expensive from the housing component to live in a walkable urban area, the walk-up, wake-up call actually found more social equity because the price of transportation and transportation and mobility options are so much more rich and less expensive. Right. I think the, the number that you told that stuck in my head was if you have a family of four or whatnot, and they can eliminate one of their two cars that they traditionally have. They can afford $100,000 more of house. Yes. And or I think if, that number might be closer to 150, but regardless. Right. If you're going from 200 to 300, that's a significant difference. 100%. And, and, and you know, again, if you then take it and that house, maybe it's a duplex. Uh, maybe it's a smaller home that's close to a downtown. If you're taking that house and you're locating it in or near one of those walkable areas uh, so that you can utilize not only not having that car, but also utilize that from social interaction to supporting local businesses, uh, walkable areas, it's much easier to set up on the incremental scale, local entrepreneurship. Those dollars start to reinforce and feed themselves within a positive cycle within a community. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you, you kind of touched on something in terms of um, I, both commercial flexibility and housing flexibility. Mm-hmm. Because to me, another thing about a walkable urban neighborhood is, um, you know, you can have people who are very, very wealthy and not wealthy at all who can be neighbors because it supports different types of housing. Mm-hmm. And you can also have people living in the same places as they... Um, as their life changes. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that gets missed from this. Uh, it's not only that, you know, I think we become so afraid of anything different uh, when at the same time we as humans love to find new and different experiences. Right. 
right? You know, so in that organic growth of cities up until the auto era of 75 years ago began, you had folks, and yes, it's not as if you didn't have wealthy areas of town and less wealthy areas of town and sort of where the workforce lived, but it was far more integrated. And even in the earlier suburban communities, you would have single family homes with duplexes and fourplexes and maybe a a well-designed sort of... um, a garden-style apartment that might be 12 to 20 units, the missing middle, so to speak. And these were resilient communities where neighbors didn't necessarily mind and actually appreciated that you might have the CEO and then you might have the janitor. And it all worked. Well, somehow we became afraid of anything that's not like us, you know, and in this monolithic suburban, everything is the same community. It has to all be single family homes when it's not as resilient. It's not as interesting. uh, And I think is damaging to sort of the cultural side of who and what we are uh, as a community, you know, long-term. And that's something I think we need to get back to. And you're seeing this, you're seeing it in, uh, in Minneapolis, you're seeing it in the Northwest where, you know, states and cities are looking to outlaw single family zones. At the end of the day, can we clarify what you mean about by that? Because that's going to confuse some yes, people. Yes, yes, and I know some people don't like the term "single family" either, because you're talking about you know the, right. the use rather than the form. But the idea is, in the Euclidean zoning that we have, uh, you know, for 99 plus percent of this country, is it starts with use, not form. You're allowed to have residential over there. You're allowed to have commercial in this other area. And it came about as a reaction, understandably so, where you didn't want, you know, a big factory that's doing a lot of polluting next to a, you know, residential community or a school. The problem is it kind of ran amok to the point where it became a segregating factor uh, in how, you know, we built our communities, you know, as a whole. So when you're going back to these single family homes, you have miles and miles of land that you're only allowed to build residential. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to emphasize that because a lot of people, when they hear getting rid of single family zoning, uh, a lot of people will say, oh, Minneapolis is making single family houses illegal. Right, and that's not the case. As we have today to sort of wrap this up, your single family homes are in areas where you can only build residential and only build one unit for one family, inhabitant, whatever you might have, you know, on each parcel. The idea of getting rid of single family zoning is to say, if you want to build a single family home, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can also build a duplex and you can also build a fourplex. And by the way, there's a limit because, and this is sort of a strong town sort of approach is, you know, if you have something that let's say is one or two stories, if you're next to something that's two or three stories, that doesn't feel out of scale. If you're next to something that's 30 stories, all of a sudden you feel a little out of scale if you're in a one or two story, you know, uh, type of building. So the idea is not to allow any type of development to happen haphazardly, but to say on this parcel, if it's something that might have two small structures and you have two families that happen to live on that parcel, if it's an accessory dwelling unit, if it's a fourplex, those belong in residential neighborhoods just as much as a single family house. It's not eliminating the single family house. It's providing the free market the opportunity to provide what the free market demands. I just ask, cause I see just so many, you know, every time I see an article about uh, getting rid of single family zoning, there's that, there's that misconception, yeah. but really it's about still having single family houses, but, but having more, more flexibility. Um, one thing that we touched on that I think is, is one of the most challenging things that that we face and i'm thinking going back to to chris leinberger and and talking about how these institutions and the you know the wall street banks and everything like that um they've really enforced these very specific standards for what can and can't be built and you'll have for example um you know the banking industry where where decisions are made centrally by people who are not on the ground um, I'd like to hear more thoughts on ideas on how how these two things can be compatible, how you can have something where you know that the money is probably going to come from an institutional perspective, but you can do something that's very specific to X community and X downtown uh, that that is that works incrementally within this institutional structure. Sure. I think the best way to do that is to really... Let's get this down to the ideology of a free market at the end of the day. Uh, The market absolutely wants more walkable urban, wants more mixed use, wants more apartments and townhomes and condos, right? 
but for a whole number of reasons, uh, it's very difficult to get a lot of those built, especially at smaller scales. For example, you can do 250 units at that institutional level, but it's really hard to get 12 or 24 you know, apartments, for example, uh, financed. I think we need to start with the idea of if there's a market for this within a mostly capitalistic society, someone's going to figure out the mousetrap and they are going to be the one that's going to benefit. And when I say they, the mousetrap has to be a combination of the private sector in terms of who's going to actually develop it and the capital and the understanding and the wherewithal, and then the municipality that's going to allow it to happen through land use regulations, zoning. Um, incentives can be a dangerous game, but there's a time where it's needed, certainly if you're going to incentivize development by, uh, as a municipality, investing in place, investing in you know infrastructure. That's what's needed. So... I think part of it is we're really new in reinventing urbanism and it's just going to take some time. But there's a reason why take Plano and Legacy West and some of the other efforts that they're doing up there have been so successful. Uh, there's a reason why Uptown, where I happen to live here, you know, near the city core in downtown Dallas, has become an economic magnet. That's municipalities and private investors that are succeeding. Don't think there aren't communities across the country and developers and bankers that are looking and saying, wow, look at these places. Look at the walk-up, wake-up research that you know, we talked about before. You know, if you're able to command twice as much money, whether it's in rent or the value of the land, whether you know, if you're able to have a company that is 30% more productive or 40% more productive, that you can hire the best talent, well, the free market is going to find its way. I think we don't like to be patient and we want to see change happen now. But I think it's conversations like we're having here. I think it's being very honest with ourselves. Uh, I think it's not poo-pooing ideas. I know a lot of times there's this sort of division between big can't be good. It hasn't usually been good, but you can do big better. And you can also, I think, accelerate the small and have incremental that is done where what might take 30 years, you can find ways to incent more investment and development so a bunch of smaller organizations and firms can get more done in a short period of time. So I think part of it is working ourselves through reinventing what is urbanism in an environment where you have the automobile. And we just have to work our way through that. But... There's going to be, you know, and there already are financial institutions that say, shoot, if I know you as a developer want to just do a single use office building and you, Christopher, instead want to do a mixed use development, I know it's more challenging for you to do that mixed use development. But if I see that I'm going to get 30% or 50% or 100% greater returns, someone's going to take that perceived risk. We're just working through that triage as we speak. I think that it's the reason why a lot of these things have to be thought of completely differently, even in terms of, such as city staff reallocation, the way we plan, the way we program things. I think a lot of the challenge is that urbanism is really, it, it's really a, a way of of living and, and not just a product. So I think, so I think that's, that's a lot of challenge in that. Brandon, you have a really great ability to speak um, on a lot of different topics, even ones that you're not particularly well-versed in yet. Um, and it's not nonsense. It's something that I, is that something that you've developed? Have you always had that skill? Is this something that, you know, you, how have you honed that and how important is that in, in these different endeavors? That sure. you First, know? let me say, thank you. Uh, if this were on TV, you'd see me blushing. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I guess we all have our strengths and weaknesses. I've always been, uh, drawn to, uh, entrepreneurship. You know, I had my own company, which is where I got hired into doing real estate. Uh, while we were doing large developments, we uh, at the institutional scale uh, at Renaissance Downtowns, we were also working hand in hand with small landowners and folks that were doing incremental work. So there's always been that entrepreneurial bent, right? And entrepreneurs, by definition, are looking for what's next in innovation. And if you or we are scared of what we don't know, well, we're never going to be able to get to where we think we want to be because we don't even know where that is yet. And I think that then ties into development, you know, is I spent, you know, over a dozen years, you know, at a, as a key exec at a development company that focused on master development, on these large scale efforts within existing downtowns where we had a thousand different constituents outside of our need as a business to do the bottom line. And we had a triple bottom line approach. We wanted socially, 
environmentally and economically responsible development. But if there were no positive economic bottom line, nothing gets done. So that was internal, but external, we had, you know, five or seven trustees or council people with conflicting agendas. We had folks that were concerned about gentrification and others that wanted more economic development. By the way, they're not only not mutually exclusive, they absolutely should work hand in hand. You had um, organizations and civic uh, organizations, you had faith-led organizations, all these different voices out there. And somehow you had, as a developer, to understand, you couldn't know, but to at least understand what each of those constituencies was going through. You then had to say, all right, as a master developer, for me to end up building, you know, over a series of phases, you know, 1,500 apartment and condos, a uh, few hundred thousand square feet of class A office, some, you know, retail that has a vibrant sort of pedestrian experience and is a mix of, you know, your national tenants, but also spurring, you know, local business. Well, you have to get really creative and you have to understand infrastructure and finance and public policy, and public engagement, and big and little p politics, and I can go on. You can't know all of that. So, you know, I'm sort of proud to be that jack of all trades. I, I don't know that I'd say I'm a master of nothing. I think certainly on the communications end and the business strategy end, but there are things I don't know, you know, infrastructure and engineering, you know, nearly as well as almost anyone out there, but I know enough of how do you integrate that, right? right? And I think that's what we all need to do. Incremental institutional, public sector, private sector, understand the folks that you were working with, right. not that are across from you at a table. It's not a municipality or a community that is across from a developer. You need to find a way to co-create that vision. And the only way to do that is to get comfortable being uncomfortable and be willing to learn at least enough about these new aspects and arenas uh, so that you can figure out how do they interplay and most important of all then get the expert in that if i want folks that are going to do a great place of energizing a place through activation through that type of programming i mean that's where i'm looking to you guys at, at ash and lime and understanding whether it's from the placemaking perspective or working with a municipality on a downtown plan but always keeping in mind well at the end of the day we want people to be doing something here we want some activity in a year after we've changed some policies maybe made some investments and you have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable i think we all need to do that in order to, to accelerate this evolution yeah, and I, I think uh, to sum it up, because I know you got to get out of here, and we didn't have a lot of time to talk about many things that we talk about all the time. We keep going for hours. But uh, you know you where know, I live, I'll be happy yeah, to come. Yeah, back. yeah, absolutely, <laughs> definitely come back. But uh, you know, that's why we sat in a room, you know, a couple of years back and worked on that pyramid of place because it's a yes. very holistic approach to everything and it, how everything interconnects together. And I think that's a really good point. And that's that's why it's always great talking with you and through different aspects because you look at the big picture, which is so important, that's as great. you just mentioned. And I want to say thank you for having me. And I'm going to throw out a parting thought um, because none of us have enough to do already. Uh, we should get back together on that period of place. Uh, I think there might be a book idea there. I yeah. think there's a, right, an we instructive all think a concept. So. I definitely think it belongs in a textbook. Yes. Because it, it's, uh, I, every time I ask people, I say, what are we missing? And, you know, we get a few things here and a few things there. It's, it's, but it's not, the, the big picture seems to be pretty solid. And so, you know, you guys can check that out on the website. I'm sure we can get it on Brandon's website if it's not on there yet. But, yeah. Um, all right. Rick, you got anything else? No. Thanks for coming, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Be well, okay. all. Thank you.